0: Phil would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Um, if you didn't bring your Bible, uh, we have that in your worship guide, the text we're going to be looking at tonight. We are taking a break from our series of going through 2 Corinthians because it's the last Sunday of the month. And the last Sunday of every month, we are, uh, we're taking a look at the Lord's Prayer. And so last month, we looked at our Father... Tonight, we're going to look at the phrase, Hallowed be thy name. Uh, You might be asking, well, what about the in heaven part? You know, our Father in heaven. Well, we've already looked briefly at that the last couple of weeks as we've been going through 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at it a lot more in detail when we look at thy kingdom come. And so so be patient. We're we're going to deal with that. But but tonight, we're going to be spending most of our time looking at the petition, Hallowed be thy name. Matthew chapter 6, begin reading in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward, receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray with me. Our Father, we do ask that in this moment the name of Jesus would be lifted up high, through your Spirit, you would draw all people to yourself. Pray that no man here receives any glory or any attention. That nobody walks away from here just thinking about the musicians or the preacher, but we would walk away thinking much about you, Lord. We have a lot happening tonight with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, with with baptism with meeting our new members, with our time of fellowship afterwards. Lord, we ask that in all of these things, all of these gifts and all of these symbols that you have given us, that they would help us to understand you more, that they would help us to love you with more affection. And now as we look at your word, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and be remembered no more. But Lord, may your words remain, and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. When Jesus asks his disciples to pray, the very first thing he tells them to do is you address God by saying, Our Father in heaven. And so we looked at how we're supposed to call God our Father. This is a a very intimate term. one that means that we are completely accepted by him. We we, we need not fear to be in his presence. We we have his affection. And when we think of a father, think of just like an earthly father. We we could go to our father and he will will meet our earthly needs. But we don't just pray to God as father, we pray to him as our father in heaven. Now you can describe heaven a number of ways. I'm just going to say it's, it's the unique place where God reigns over the universe. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says that heaven is God's throne. So it's, it's where God uniquely reigns. And we're going to look more about that next month. But for now, Jesus' main point is that God is your Father, but he's, he's, not, he's not an earthly Father with earthly limitations. He has no limitations. He is a heavenly Father, he has absolute power, absolute control. And the, re- the reason this is important is because a- as a earthly father, I know my limitations and sometimes it's pretty discouraging. I, I actually like to think I'm a halfway decent dad. You know, I'm-, I'm a pretty good father. Yet I can pretty much assure you that tonight when we you know, go over to the castles for our time of fellowship, I'm going to lose track of at least one of my three children. Um, and I will have no idea what they are doing. So if they make it through the evening, it will be a miracle because I, I, I can't be everywhere at once. Um, and so I have failed them many times. You know, when Caroline was a little baby, and I'm trying to show, you know, like, tough love. We're just going to let her cry through the night. Um, I remember the first time we did that, she is screaming her head off in the other room. And I'm like, not going in there, not going in there, not going in there. I mean, it's just screaming, screaming. I was like, she will, I, she will go to sleep. I'm going to win this battle. And then we wake up in the morning and we find her foot was crammed in the side of the crib and she was just like, it was pinching her and she was screaming all night while her dad was on the other side of the door doing nothing. You think I would learn the lesson? Well, then Natalie comes, you know, and so same thing, tough love. I'm going to let you scream all through the night. And so she is screaming and she is crying and finally she goes to sleep and when I go in there she is just surrounded in her own vomit that she had to sleep in. As her dad, her loving dad was on the other side of the door. This, as much as dads love their children. Like, I, I, can't, I can't see through walls. I, I, can't, I can't always be watching over her. And, and even when I am acting out of love, I can make mistakes. But our Father is in heaven. There, there is not a place we can go where we would ever escape His gaze. He perfectly watches over us. And He has complete control and, and sovereign reign and protecting us, navigating our lives. And we're to take comfort in that. And so that's how we are to address God. And, and, and then we get to the petitions. Now, the Lord's Prayer is broken up really into two main parts. The, the first part is set with three petitions, and, and they're very majestic. They're all about God, they're about God's name, God's kingdom. God's will. And then the second part of the prayer is a little more mundane. It's it's about us. It's about our bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance. And so you have first part, first three requests, petitions that God teaches us to pray are all about God. God. I mean, just right there, you could land, and you could just you think about your own prayer life, and you could just think, "Where is my priority in prayer?" Because the very first three things God teaches us to pray are all about Him, not about us. The very first petition is of absolute importance: "Hallowed be Your name." Now, for some reason, if you're praying this, you have to say "hallowed." It's the only time ever you will say the word hallowed. All the other times you will say hallowed. I don't know why we do hallowed, but we do. We say hallowed. And when we say hallowed be thy name, this is a petition. This is not a statement. We're not saying, Lord, your name is hallowed. We're saying, let it be hallowed. May it be this. It's It's a petition. Now, we don't use this word Hallow very much. Um, although on this Thursday night we're going to celebrate All Hallows Eve, um, you know the the day in the liturgical you know church calendar in which um, we remember the saints of old, and we do so by dressing up like Frankenstein or a Miley Cyrus or a Transformer or something, and and going to people's homes and knocking and asking them to give us candy or we'll egg their house. And that's how we, we honor their, you know, their memory. And this all-hallowed Eve. So given that that's the only time we ever even think of the word hallow, we probably need to define it differently. Um, because it does have a much different connotation to it. Probably every translation you have uses the word hallow. And the reason is there's not really a good alternative. It's an old word, um, but it's really the only word that we can use. And so even though I'm reading from one of the most modern translations around, it keeps this very old word, hallow. To to hallow something means to treat it as sacred. It means that you're going to make this thing or this person the most crucial important thing in your life. It's the ultimate thing in your life. To to hallow something means that you you treasure it above all else. That you see it as ultimately beautiful. It's it's beyond compare. It's holy, And, and by holy, holy just means set apart or it's not like anything else. It is uniquely treasured. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name, he is saying, Father, may your name be treasured. May your name be adored. May your name be set apart from every other name. May it be supremely honored and valued above all else. And that's our first petition. And it's, it's not just your first in order. It's the first in prominence. This petition is going to set the stage for all of the other petitions that will follow. So we are going to pray that God's kingdom would come after this, but the reason we are going to pray God may your kingdom come it's because we want your name to be hallowed. And So when we When we pray that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's because we want His name to be hallowed. We want it to be treasured and adored on earth just like it is in heaven. When we pray for bread for sustenance, we're praying that we would have strength in order to worship God, in order to hallow Him. When we're praying that He would forgive us, it's in order that His name would be hallowed. When we pray that we would be delivered from evil, it's in order that God's name might be supremely treasured. So, so in other words, if you, don't, if you don't understand that we are to hallow God's name, hold it up as supreme worth, and that's the ultimate goal, you're not going to get the rest of the Lord's Prayer. You might actually pray the rest of the Lord's Prayer for very selfish reasons. So what does Jesus mean when he says, we're to hallow God's name. What exactly is he you know, telling us to do it? it? It sounds a lot like the third commandment. You know, The third of the Ten Commandments, which is, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Sounds like hallowing his name. It was a commandment that was needed 3,400 years ago. When, when Moses gave it to the Israelites, it was a commandment needed 2,000 years ago when, when Jesus is teaching this, and it certainly is a commandment that, that we would need now because everywhere you know I look, people are taking the Lord's name in vain. You, you cannot watch TV. You cannot watch a movie and not hear the Lord's name taken in vain. I mean, I was, I was watching some movie, and I cannot... Count the number of times that, you know, this teenage girl would, would say, Jesus Christ, or she would say, uh, oh my God, and, and it wasn't done at a prayer. <laughs> uh, it was done just as an, a general expression of surprise, or maybe to fill in a gap instead of saying, um, you know, that's, that's what it was the equivalent of. And, and when we hear this, I think we've become so desensitized to it, but when we hear this, it should sound like somebody, you know, scraping their nails on a chalkboard. It should just hurt us. Pain us when we hear the Lord's name taken in vain, said with such irreverence. To hear the name Jesus Christ used as a swear word at times is blasphemy. And and it needs to strike us as such. Now, I I know people who do that, and I don't think for a moment that they wake up in the morning, and they're like, you know, stretch, and they're like, how can I blaspheme God today? You know, let me just kind of think of What's, what's the worst way that I could possibly blaspheme his name? And, and then they go about doing that. I don't know anybody who deliberately does that. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask some of the people who, who take the Lord's name in vain all the time, they would say, I, I, well, I didn't mean to blaspheme God's name. I wasn't even thinking about God at all when I said it. And there's the blasphemy right there. They weren't even thinking about God. The God who spoke the very universe into existence. The God who created them. The God who commands their very next breath. They don't give Him a thought. There's the blasphemy. And it allows them to to say His name with such irreverence. When God is not central to a person's life, that's going to be the outflow of it. And really, when you think of it that way, uh, these people are not so much breaking the third commandment. They are, but really they're breaking the first, that thou shalt have no other gods before me. Or another way of saying that is that God should be first and foremost in my thoughts and in my affections. That God should be of central importance in my life. That God should be the one who I build my entire identity on. God should be hallowed. When Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name, he's not so much reminding you of the third commandment as he is reminding you of the first, that you should have no other gods before him, that there should be nothing, nothing that you build your life on apart from him. There's nothing that you should treasure more than him. So the question is this, how do we know? How do we know if we're actually doing this? How do we know if we're worshiping other gods before the one true God, the Lord God? How do we we know if we're really hallowing His name? And by His name, I mean His character, his, His being, His person. Jesus tells us how when He's one of the ways how. When he sets up this prayer in Matthew 5, look again at verse 5. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me again. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here Jesus is setting up a contrast between hypocrites who pray in public and a prayer life done in secret. Now, why are these people here who pray and public hypocrites. It's one of the questions you have to answer. Why the hypocrites? A hypocrite was an actor. It was one who responded to a cue, one who would put on a show for, for others, who what they did outwardly doesn't really match their inward person. That's, that's a hypocrite. But why were these people's public prayers hypocritical? Was it because they didn't pray at home at all? And so just prayer in general was hypocritical for them? Or was it how they prayed at home when they were in secret was vastly different than how they prayed when they were with people? And I think that's what Jesus is driving at. He's hinting that the way that these people would pray in public did not match their inward desires and how they would pray in private if they did pray. Because, you know, public prayers, are, they're always centered around God and, and praising Him and adoring Him. And so you're going to pray things like, you know, if, if it's a public prayer, God, you are holy, you are majestic. Um, God, you, you reign supreme and power and you're glorious. And you're going to pray things like that when you're praying in public. That's what public prayers look like. And I think Jesus is calling them hypocrites because that's not what their prayers looked like when they were in private. Privately, their prayers were a lot more probably centered on themselves and their needs. So if or when these people would pray in private, they would pray all their true affections which were centered on themselves, then they would be rightly called hypocrites. I think Jesus is saying that what you pray for in private truly reveals what you hold dear in your heart. So what do you pray for in private? Does it match how you pray in public? What, what occupies most of your private prayer? Uh, perhaps a better way or another way of thinking about this is what drives you to pray? What, what happens in your life that, that makes you pray? Uh, do, do you only pray privately maybe when your health is threatened? W- when you have a serious sickness, then you go into your closet and then you pray and you, and you pray, God, make me well. If so, what you are hallowing is your health, not God. If perhaps when there's a financial crisis and it comes upon you and that drives you to pray, and that's the only time that you pray, then what you are hallowing is money, not God. If you only pray when you're having marital problems, or or if you're single, you only pray in order that you might get married, it shows that marriage is what you hallow, not God. What, what drives you to pray? I can give you an indication of what you're hallowing. Is the praise and adoration of God what drives you to prayer in secret? So how you pray in private reveals what you hallow. If you only pray when you are in trouble or when something is being threatened, and that's the only time you pray, that thing in your life that's being threatened has the affection of your heart. It's what you hallow. It's what the Bible would call an idol or a god. So you're violating that first commandment. You're having other gods besides Him. Because all of us, when we pray publicly, of course, we're gonna praise and we're gonna adore God. But what really holds our inward affections? What drives us during those times? We go to the closet. I feel like I need to be clear on this. Please pray for your health, you know. Please pray about your jobs and your marriage. Do all those things, just like you're supposed to pray for daily bread. All right, But once again, what frames it? I pray for a good marriage so that God, your name, might be hallowed and treasured. The hallowing of God frames and directs all those other prayers. So what do you do if this is not you? You're like, you know, you're hearing this, you're like, I hear that, I agree with that, and that honestly is not me. How do I I change this? How how can I increase my affections? If if you would, let, let me point you to one place. If you would turn to Exodus 34, Exodus 34, verse 5. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so you'll be turning a good bit. This is perhaps the best passage that I know of to uh, understand how God himself hallows his own name. This is how God hallows his own name. Um, Set the context here. (coughs) Moses has requested to see God's glory. God... Somewhat agrees, and he says, All right. And so he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand and he walks by Moses. And then as he releases his hand, Moses gets to see just a glimpse of, of God and his glory. And as God is passing by, he declares his name Yahweh, Yahweh. But he doesn't just say his name. He goes on to kind of tell what he means when he says it. Here you get a glimpse of God treasuring or hallowing his own name as he is walking by Moses, declaring it. And so that's, that's the context here of Exodus 34. We'll begin reading in verse 5. <coughs> the Lord, and the, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, that is, The name of the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh. Descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before Him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So so that's how God hallows His name by by, by saying these these words. He, He says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And when you think of Yahweh, when you think of me, think of this. And he says, "I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithful, and I forgive sins." Treasure that. Delight in that as I am delighting in that. However, God then reminds them that he's holy and he's just. And he says, "And I will by no means clear the guilty." Look at verse 7. I mean, verse 7 is one of those verses you should probably have highlighted, starred, underlined everything in your Bible. It is one of the most crucial verses in the Bible. He says, "He's a God who he is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty." That makes no sense. I'm the God who forgives, and I will by no means clear the guilty. I hold them accountable. Like, wait, wait, can you run that by me again? You're the, you're the God who forgives. You're gracious and you're merciful. I forgive, and yet I will hold you absolutely accountable. I will not clear the guilty. And God holds up both of those things and He says, you want to hallow my name? You want to treasure my name? Hold up both of those things. What God is doing is He is pointing to the cross where we see that on beautiful display. Where when we look at Jesus, we see that God is forgiving, that He is gracious, that He is loving, that He has been faithful when I have been faithless. And that warms our hearts But but we also want to serve a just God. We also want to love a just God. But that's a big problem for us. And so once again, when we look at Jesus, we see he doesn't clear the guilty. But he has placed my guilt upon Jesus. And he has poured out his wrath on Jesus. And so at the cross, we see both the love of God and the justice of God. The mercy of God and the wrath of God bound together on beautiful display says, you want to hallow my name? Think of that costly love. Think of that costly love that has drawn you to myself. And when that is center and that is foremost, my name will be hallowed in your midst. We're going to take time to remember that in a couple of ways now. (coughs) We're going to remember that in the the visible way of the Lord's Supper, taking communion. And we're also going to see that on display um, when we have baptisms outside, when we have another picture of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm thankful for the tangible displays that we have, these reminders to help anchor these things in our soul and to, to remind us that these are real. When Jesus said he's the bread of life, sometimes we could just, we just, it could be merely a thought, but, but then he, he breaks bread and he gives it to us. And he says, just as this bread is real, I am real. My body was not just broken on a page, it was really broken for you. And so we remember that at this time. On well, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, "This is my body, I'm broken for you." In the same way he took the cup, he said, "This is the cup of the new covenant." This is cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. The Apostle Paul would later say, as often as you eat of this bread, and you drink of this cup, you proclaim Christ's death until He comes again. We remember, we collectively remember both the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of God, and we remember the wrath poured out on sin. And we see those things on beautifully pictured before us on the cross, and we hallow his name. This is how we're going to take communion tonight. Um, we're actually going to have three lines, so we'll have a line here, a line in the middle, a line there. And just come as, as the Lord leads, and if you would just break off a piece of the bread and just, just dip it in the cup and take. And then you're welcome, if you want to pray at one of the, the kneeling benches here, return to your seat. To pray or to sing. We're going to have some songs going on during this time. Feel free to do as the Lord leads. Pray with me now. Our Father, we pray that we would, in this moment, hallow your name that we would adore you, that we would treasure you, that we would see you as supremely valuable and of infinite beauty and worth beyond all else. I pray we would see those things as we focus on the cross and as we take of this tangible reminder of that. So God, as we do this, we ask that you would come in this would not just be communion in name, but it'd be communion in spirit and that indeed that you would be present here in our midst. Spirit now, anchor these things in our hearts and our souls. Give us new life that we might see and celebrate the name of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.